Well, you did such a lovely job praying. I feel like, you know, that's been covered. So good job. <laughs> um, I am so happy to be with you tonight. Um, if uh, we haven't met before, my husband and I and our two uh, daughters, uh, ages four and seven, moved to Mount Pleasant two and a half years ago, where we're both at ION. And, um, and we come from the north, so this is a lovely change. And, um, and so I'm just really grateful to be here. Tonight, we are going to consider God's word to us in pain. I'm going to give a few thoughts on art and pain, and then we're going to consider Ezekiel chapter 1 as a paradigm for God approaching us through the visual art. And then we'll look how God might be speaking through two artists, Pablo Picasso and contemporary artist Leo Twiggs. Um, so, and then I'll end on a, on a personal note. I have always loved making art myself. My daughter does too. And she has a great first grade art teacher who encourages her students that every child is an artist. Isn't that true? But then as life continues, we get judged, we compare, and we either feel condemnation or pride in our creative sides. And by the time we're grown up, art is so much about what hurts, suffering, pain, especially in the modern and contemporary art world. Art is how we communicate the deep things about us, the deeper than words, the full spectrum of life, from joy as in a child's discovery to pain as in the grief of an adult. Edvard Munch, painter of the scream, he said, art emerges from joy and pain, but mostly from pain. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, in his book, Grace and Necessity, he suggests that God was at play when he made us. He was the creator at play. He didn't have to make us. He wanted to. And he has filled our lives with creative excess, the beauty all around us and the desire in us to create. We don't have to, but we want to. This creative excess is a gift, a gift from him to us, through which he is always approaching us. Perhaps that's why being creative, whatever form that takes for you, whether hosting a beautiful dinner party like tonight or making something with your hands, um, making music, you name it. It is such a vulnerable experience. When we create, our creator is speaking deeply to us. Pope John Paul II, in his letter to artists, <clears throat> said, even when they explore the darkest depths of the soul or the most unsettling aspects of evil, artists give voice in a way to the universal desire for redemption. There's an acclaimed Russian filmmaker, Andrei Tarkovsky, who, who did a very 
bizarre science fiction film called Solaris, which I have seen, and I, um, if you've seen it, I'd be amazed too. But um, it's uh, from 1972, but he describes the act of making art as a form of grieving for heaven. This world is so far from it. Things are not good, and we yearn for all things to be made new. And we produce out of this yearning. Art makes space for this grieving. It facilitates it. I'd like to show you um, something that we did in Lent. This is a Lenten confessional from our church plant in Pittsburgh, uh, the, the post where my husband and I were before this one. And throughout Lent, the congregation would go one by one to the back of the worship space and make their confession. Art made space for the grief over suffering. So on the left, you'll see their confession over the weeks of Lent. And I used that to create a piece I call Calvary. The negative space inside the three crosses still shows the confession. Dan Seidel, the art critic and author of God in the Gallery, he argues for the, the painting to act upon you. The painting is confronting you, affecting you. Whether it's positive or negative, it's all useful. And he likens it to God's word of conviction, shining a mirror on us through the law. And Christians tend to worry about whether this art is appropriate or good, and so he goes on to invite all Christians just to be listeners and receivers, connecting first with our own pain to the works we see. One final thought before we move on. Lutheran theologian Stephen Paulson, um, author of Luther for Armchair Theologians, he said this in regard to how we cope with pain. That my first response when we're feeling pain is why? To ask why. Why did you let this happen, God? It's what Martha asked Jesus. Why didn't you come? Why did you let Lazarus die? Why? And Paulson says that this is not the question that Jesus answers. We ask this because we think if we have a rational answer, we can go on about our lives as our own gods. And Paulson says this, God doesn't want to explain why, but rather take the suffering from you and carry it himself. So let's ponder this redeeming work in our deep places in Ezekiel 1. So this picture is taken from the Ravenel Bridge over Thanksgiving. It's the most beautiful rainbow I've ever seen in my life. Um, and it's the perfect setting for the opening of Ezekiel. Ezekiel had been exiled to Babylonia, and he is on the bank of the river Kabar. He is in a foreign land as a consequence of the Jews' idolatrous trust in Egypt. The Jews with Ezekiel are banking on the fact that God is going to protect them and return them to Jerusalem because the temple was there. 
And the temple and the Ark of the Covenant had turned into a lucky charm for the Jews. Their faith was in those symbols rather than in God himself. In chapter 1, Ezekiel would be commissioned to tell the Jews that the temple will be destroyed. And furthermore, it won't just be the Babylonians or the Assyrians, but it's actually God himself allowing this to happen, exposing in order to redeem. Ezekiel was trained as a priest, a respectable job with some status and some stature, but in this first chapter, God will call him to be a prophet to people who will reject him. And furthermore, he will bind Ezekiel's mouth at first. So Ezekiel will have to do all of these sign acts and act and create models and act out God's prophecy, sorry, to him, uh, to the people. Um, and uh, he'll actually become a performance artist um, to the rebellious house. And so here is Ezekiel in a faraway land filled with idols, and he sees the heavens open. Great storm clouds flash with lightning, and down descends four living creatures. And they each have bodies of a human, but they have four faces, one of a human, one of an ox, one of an eagle, one of a lion. They have four wings. They each have wheels. They have actually a wheel within a wheel, and the wheel's covered in eyes. And also, whenever uh, where they are completely directed by the Spirit, wherever the Spirit directs them to go, they go. Upon these creatures are crystal winged creatures with their wings touching like this, which is a picture of the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So on top of these bizarre creatures is the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of that is a throne. And one in the likeness of the appearance of a man is seated on this throne. And from the waist up he is covered with fire, and from the waist below he is wrapped in rainbows. I tell my girls, Jesus' throne is wrapped in rainbows. And they're like, of course it is. <laughs> it makes perfect sense to them. Ezekiel hears a sound of the Spirit like many waters, like the Almighty, like the army, he writes. And when God speaks, these creatures stand still and let down their wings. Have you ever been in a place, physical or mental, where you thought God couldn't reach you? The bank of the river of Kabar. Where you thought, this is too far gone. This is too messy. Ezekiel sees Christ's throne rolling down on the banks of the river Kabar, literally bringing heaven down to earth to meet his people. The wheels have eyes. They see all, and he approaches. Jesus is seated upon the full color spectrum. So every possible creation and every ability to see is under his authority. 
And furthermore, he's riding upon these bizarre creatures. And they are actually appropriated from Babylonian idols. The four-faced animal god are all foreign idols, foreign gods in Babylonia. And in this vision, they are completely dominated by Christ, moving them exactly where the Spirit tells them to go. And he rides them down, bringing his covenant of mercy to his prophet. He will first convict and expose and lay bare. God's first word to us exposes our need. But his throne is wrapped in rainbows, a promise never to wipe us out in judgment again. In fact, that's why Christ himself comes. This exile, this destruction of the, temp the temple, would be partial, just a taste of judgment, like a parent teaching boundaries to their children. It would only be a partial taste. Jesus himself would take the full blow. He would take the full blow of God's righteous anger upon our sin and the suffering that imprisons us. The king of mercy has come to love us in the way we needed it most and to make us face the pain and confess. To confess literally means to agree with God that yes, this, this sin, this suffering, it's horrible. And then to take the pain upon himself. God's second word to us is forgiveness and grace and mercy to help in time of need. And art is his gift. It's his gift to us that helps us face the joys and the pain. And I can think of no greater example of an artist that helps us face the pain than Picasso's in his painting, Guernica. Okay, here we go. There it is. Guernica was created in response to the bombing of Guernica, a Basque country village in northern Spain, by German and Italian warplanes at the behest of the Spanish nationalist forces on the 26th of April, 1937, during the Spanish Civil War. Upon completion, it was traveled, it was displayed around the world and became a symbol for the tragedies of war and actually helped to raise the world's attention to the Spanish Civil War and even bring it to an end. And the power of this painting is incredibly ironic given Picasso's worldview. Now let's take a look at the artist. When I die, Picasso said, it will be a shipwreck as when a huge ship sinks and many people all around will be sucked down with it. Yes, yes, how about that? Sadly, Picasso was right. After he died in 1973, age 91, three of those closest to him committed suicide. His second wife, Jacqueline, an early mistress, Marie-Thérèse, and his grandson, Pablito, and several others had psychiatric breakdowns. His own mother warned his first wife, I don't believe any woman could be happy with my son. He's available for himself, but no one else. 
So don't date him. Glad that ship has passed. None of us are at risk. But including all of this, he was an atheist. He was an avowed follower of Nietzsche. And Picasso held that God was dead. And he was heard muttering, I am God. I am God, as he would paint. So now let's take a look at this painting. This caught my eye in, in college, and I, um, to me, it made cubism make sense. And I was like, oh, I really understand how valuable it is to see the way in which it's painted conveying the message behind it matched so well. The cubism Picasso employed serves to give the composition an all-over jilted, fragmented, shattered effect. Each section has an equal degree of highlights and shadows. Each section has the same amount of contrast. So there's drama from left to right in every area. There's no rest in this painting, which is what war feels like. He uses a limited palette of navy and white and black, and it gives the image an iconic timeless effect like the black and white shots of old newspapers. It also mutes the canvas. It reminds me of the beginning scenes of Saving Private Ryan where you see the war opening, but there's no music. And that's how this painting feels to me. The pastiche, overdone character of the composition also contributes to the sense of desperation. And we can return to, to looking at some of the symbols, you know, maybe in question and answer or afterwards. Um, but I'd just like to draw your attention to the dead child on the left-hand side of the screen. Uh, it's a mother holding this, this dead infant. And that is perhaps the most compelling, heart-wrenching symbol of the ambivalence of bombs and the injustice of war. There's debate as to whether there's hope in this picture at all or just rage. What do you think? I think I could see that spirit-like figure coming in through the window holding a candle, uh, a natural light source versus the artificial light source. She has soft lines that could be kind of a hopeful messenger from the outside, but yet that look of shock and awe could also be a rubbernecking neighbor. It's, it's uncertain. But the other thing that there are are windows. There are four windows in this painting, which are a window to the outside, and they show the passage of time, that this too will pass. So there is a whisper of hope, at least, in this painting. But I find this painting so juicy because in it I see an artist in crisis. Picasso did not believe in objective good or evil. He was God, remember? But when we push his nihilism to the nth degree, we, we lose the ability to make any moral judgments. But yet this painting, you can feel it. He is saying, look at that dead child. That is evil. And this painting is showing what war does, what we do to each other is evil. And so this, this painting is a strong testimony 
that he felt very deeply beyond what words could say that there was a wrong and this was it. So this, from his gut, he looked at the world and said it's real. And so if there's an eternal good and an eternal evil, because if there's evil, then there's got to be good, um, then there's a standard outside of us, and there must be a God creating it. In this painting, I see Ezekiel chapter 1. I see Jesus riding upon Picasso's idols to speak truth to a hurting world, that God is real and that he sees. Picasso would never have intended to help the work of Christ. That was not his objective. And he would have never intended to say that there's objective good or evil or that God defines them. That was not his agenda. He's not even trying to give hope. But yet this painting was used to bring hope to bring attention to this war and actually bring it to an end. If God can use Picasso to show that he is real, then he can use this painting to show what pain feels like, to show what pain feels like without really knowing him in his son. Picasso's painting is a mirror. It convicts us, but it cannot transform us. A mirror cannot transform people from broken to free. A savior must do that. Jesus is God's word to us in pain. Now let's look at an artist who knows this sovereign God riding upon the idols of our age to reach his hurting people. He too was led to paint the pain, but also the hope in the face of it. Leo Twiggs was born in St. Stephen, South Carolina, 1934. He has degrees in art from the Art Institute of Chicago, New York University, the University of Georgia. And as professor of art at South Carolina State University, he developed the art department and the IP Standback Museum there. In May 2017, Dr. Twiggs was recognized with the Governor Elizabeth O'Neill Verner Award for Lifetime Achievement, as well as the Order of the Palmetto South Carolina's highest civilian honor. And he painted these paintings in response to a tragedy you all know far too well. On the evening of June 17, 2015, White supremacist Dylan Roof murdered nine African Americans at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church just down the road from you, the Mother Emanuel um, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Within weeks of the tragedy, Leo Twiggs began painting as a cathartic means of coping not only with the horrors of the event, but also the awe he felt in the days after as he watched South Carolinians unite in what he describes as the state's most humane hour. Over the next 11 months, one painting begat ideas for another. The emotions kept flowing and he kept painting and he actually painted nine paintings in honor of the nine victims. And the series is called Requiem for Mother Emanuel. And it was on display in the South Carolina State Museum last spring. 
and now the paintings have been bought by different galleries um, around the country. On the South Carolina State Museum website, it features a seven-minute video where he describes the impetus for these paintings. And Twig says, Charleston is the place where the slave boats landed. Slaves were packed in like sardines, and here they were sold into their darkness. Here they learned about the Christian God who suffered for their sakes and died to forgive their sins. It is this same word that turned this tragedy into a story of redemption. His words. Twiggs does not paint in oil. He chose a difficult medium that reflects his heritage of African-American textiles. He also incorporates indigo, which was a main commodity used by the slaves, and you'll see that color a lot in his pieces. So he uses batik, which is an ancient wax resist um, process traditionally used to decorate scarves and textiles and clothing. And so he's actually painting using batik. And we're going to look at the last three of these nine paintings. Oh, I touched, I touched something. There we go. I know we don't have internet. We don't need it. We're good. Okay. So the last three, seven, eight, and nine. So the overall effect of these paintings is transformation or redemption. So that's, yeah, those are the last three right there. Okay. So you'll see in his pieces, this is number seven, um, a sense of threat. Uh, there's the Confederate flag. Um, imagery. There are many targets used for target practice, um, and they will give way gradually to crosses flying out of the chimney um, to a message being shared with the world. And I, I find that symbol very powerful, the cross, something that could take the worst that humanity could do. And also, what the self-sacrificing God has done about it. And so the target practices transform, they diminish, and the crosses increase. You'll see the church, he's using a very stark palette uh, until the end. The church almost has a tomb-like shape. Um, there was a passage from night and number seven, uh, today, and then to twilight at the end. And he's also incorporated a cross in the very composition of his painting. You'll see this almost white jarring line that goes across the middle of his paintings, and it was in this one too, just at the bottom. Um, but he's actually creating a cross through the composition of his paintings. And here we come to the last piece, the most colorful of the series. And the words at the bottom say, we have come over a way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. And Leo Twiggs has appropriated the words from 
lift every voice and sing, which has now become the anthem of the NAACP. It was first written in 1900 by James Weldon Johnson and set to music by his brother. So he's appropriated the lyrics for Lift Every Voice and Sing to apply not only to the blood of the victims, but also to the blood of his savior. And through these paintings, he's also given space to grieve. Um, he notes all of the idols of our day, the things that divide us, the things that kill us. But instead of asking Jesus, why did this happen? We see twigs showing Christ in that church on that day, entering fully into that pain and taking it from them and carrying it himself. And as viewers, we experience him doing that too in our lives as we look at the paintings. The redemption was powerful in the act of forgiveness, and it testified to the world a power greater than pain. So what have I said so far? God has given us a gift in art. When we enjoy it, we speak from the deepest places in us, and we get to grieve deeply. Ezekiel gives us a picture of a powerful savior riding upon the idols of his age to reach his people. And he exposes in order to redeem. Picasso gives us a picture of God using an enemy of the gospel to help us grieve the horrors of war and the horror of suffering. Jesus rode upon the idol of even Picasso himself to help his people, to confront them and to act upon them. But Picasso's painting is not the full story. It leaves us aching, aching, crying out for hope. And we looked at Leo Twiggs, who knows the crucified Lord, and he also painted the pain, and he also helps us grieve, perhaps in a more full extent. Um, this is because he had a powerful hope in the face of pain a redeemer at work. In these paintings, I see Twiggs having a conversation with God as he created these pieces. He did not find out why God let this happen. But something far greater happened. Jesus redeemed the pain. And he helped him and us through his work to grieve. And we got to see Christ enter fully into the pain and take it from twigs, from the victims, and from us, and carry it himself. And that continues to bear fruit of forgiveness and hope for others and other victims. On a personal note, um, I clearly love seeing the risen Christ at work through the visual art, whether the artist knows it or not. <laughs> um, but since I've been ordained, which was two years ago on Sunday, on St. Patrick's Day, I have actually felt led to step back from the amount of ministry I did with my husband when he and I planted the church in Pittsburgh. And I had gotten so exhausted from giving birth and raising little children, and starting a ministry that I feared I might burn out. 
And furthermore, I wanted to incorporate my children more into our ministry and have more time wearing less hats. While my ego would say I would like to do everything and be awesome at it, I find comfort in Ezekiel, whom God called and carried along in his spirit, even as he switched things up on him. A lot of my day is parenting now, which is a death to a lot of things, even with great joy in the midst of it. And here's a picture of the kind of space art is creating, inviting children and parents to see their everyday life in the hands of God. This is the angel Gabriel, who surprised Mary and a number of people in the New Testament uh, that I drew for the children and parents in our family service at Ion. And we brought it outside the chapel right after the service and chatted and colored it in over the course of the fall in preparation for Advent. And I took it home after the series of weeks and connected the doodles that were kind of here and there and there um, with my two children helping me, child labor. Um, and uh, as, I, as I got into, the, into the, the drawing, I noticed there were several scribbles on the angel, um, either done in excitement or frustration, and, you know, somebody had just been like, blah, blah, like that. And so um, that became my main mark to connect the drawings, um, to, to connect the sort of isolated things that were written, that were drawn on there. The energy of childhood, the scribble, tied the angel together. And the scribble has become a metaphor to what parenting feels like to me. Parenting is where I see my sin, the idols in my life, more than ever, and have to ask for forgiveness. And the risen Christ rode upon those scribbles to me as I colored this in and found me at my own river, Kabar, and reassured me that his grace is sufficient for my family and me. And he's riding upon idols to meet you too. And he's here to enter fully into the pain and to take it from you and carry it himself. Would you pray with me? I thank you for your passionate love, Lord, for each woman here. I thank you that you know the story um, she brings and I thank you, Lord, that you um, are a redeemer and that you enter into the things that trouble us, the things that we cannot handle, and you take them upon yourself. And I pray for your encouragement and grace as we all return and go home tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>